Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. Welcome to this week's episode of People First. And my guest this week is Dr. Jenny Byrne, who is the founder and CEO of Constellation LLC and the chief patient officer at Belong Health. She has been called a triple threat because of her work as a physician leader, a healthcare executive, and as an entrepreneur. She is a brain and behavior specialist with extensive training and experience in psychiatry, psychotherapy, and neuroscience. And I'm excited to welcome her to People First this week because she has a new book coming out called Work Smart, Use Your Brain and Behavior to Master the Future of Work. So I'm looking forward to diving into that and learning more. But firstly, Dr. Jenny, welcome to People First. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I was reading through the background. Obviously, we're new connections. This is, you know, an early date in our relationship. <laughs> but I discovered an interesting little factlet that you and I have something in common. And this is often the case when we are curious about others. We find little nuggets. And our nugget is that we both play the bassoon. So tell me, it's an uncommon instrument. It's an uncommon instrument for women because you have to be a certain size to be able yes. to hold it. So how did you get introduced to the bassoon? So it's a funny story, and I don't know if your story is similar, but I played the violin for many years first. Mm -hmm. Yep. yep. Uh, starting when I was probably about seven, I started violin. And then when I was in middle school, um, I was intrigued by playing a woodwind. And I saw the bassoon and I was like, that's really interesting. Um, maybe I could play that. And I told somebody, my director of one of my or my symphonies, and he said, oh, no, you could never play that. Oh, so then challenge accepted. <laughs> then, of course, I had to play it. And so I started and then I learned that nobody plays bassoon except you, apparently, Morak, but uh, nobody else plays it. So you can be a pretty mediocre bassoon player and still be the best in the state is what I learned. And so it was wonderful way for me to, um, I, I kept playing violin and I played bassoon, but bassoon opened doors for me that I actually would never have had if I had uh, mm. started with the violin. So I had a similar story. My mom and my dad were both violinists, but it made my arm ache. And again, had lessons <laughs> at about five or six, but I took up the flute at the age of 11 and by 15 had finished all the exams in England. And it was like, well, what are you going to do? I know I don't want to be a professional musician because I'd actually right. have to practice versus sight read. And so my teacher put me onto the bassoon. And it was the same teacher as my flute teacher. And so for the next three years, I did all the bassoon exams, but I did every lesson standing up. And at mm -hmm. the end of three years, here's the irony, Dr. Jenny. He said to me, um, so I'm curious, why did you stand? And I was thinking, well, because you're my flute teacher and we always stood for flute lessons. I assumed that's what you wanted me to do. <laughs> so there I am holding an instrument that weighs eight to 10 pounds hanging off my neck. But uh, you, like you, I switched and rarely got invited flutes are ten a penny, but bassoonists are as rare as hen's teeth. And so ended up playing with a local symphony orchestra, but all good fun, all good fun. All right. So back to people first. In a moment, <laughs> we're going to dive into your book, Work Smart, Use Your Brain and Behavior to Master the Future of Work. But I start each episode with an origin story. So if we flash back to elementary school, you've put the violin down, not yet reached for the bassoon. But when your teachers asked you as a young girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer? So it's a great question. And I never knew. I never mm. knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I knew what I didn't want to be. Okay. So I knew I didn't want to be um, a teacher. 
I knew I didn't want to be an astronaut. I didn't want to be a, a an athlete. Um, but I actually didn't know what I wanted. I was a voracious reader. So I probably would have said something around books. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I would have said a librarian, but you know, I actually never knew. I never knew I wanted to be a doctor, a scientist. I mean, all the things that I've kind of become in my life, I never knew. I just kind of follow my nose and have ended up doing a bunch of extraordinary things. But if you would have asked me as a kid, I would have been like, well, I don't want to be the mom who stays at home and makes cookies. I know I'm not going to be that mom. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know what I want to be. So you talk there about medicine, psychiatry, psychotherapy, neuroscience, brain science. So what was the pivot point then that did bring you into healthcare? I, uh, maybe not surprising based on what we just said, but I started college as a music performance major because that's what I did all day long. I played music all day long. So I was like, well, I'll be a music performance major. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like you, I was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. And then I was like, I know. I'll be a French major. I want to live abroad. And so I lived abroad um, and I became a French major. And then I was like, I don't think I want to be a French professor. And when I came back, I landed in a class in brain and behavior at University of Pennsylvania. And I just fell in love. And I would say everything I've done since then has been some way related to brain and behavior um, and what what makes people tick from all sorts of different angles. So I'm intensely curious and um, that's kind of led me to say yes to things, I guess is the best way to characterize it. So your book, Work Smart, Use Your Brain and Behavior to Master the Future of Work. I was able to get a sneak peek because it actually hits the shelves early in 23. But what was the inspiration and why write this book now? So I got inspired to write the book because like you, like so many other people, um, you know, I was forced to really re-examine a lot of things during the pandemic. And a lot of my colleagues, you know, I'm a little older, you know, uh, a lot of my colleagues, Gen X or older, um, were thinking about what to do next. And they're like, well, we'll just go back to work like normal. And I was like, why? You, you hated work. You complained about it all the time. And by the way, you're kind of the boss. So why would you go back and do something you hated for another 10 or 15 years? It doesn't make sense to me. And a lot of the clients I was working with in healthcare were saying the same thing, you know, like our teams don't want to go back or we're trying to work virtually or can we do telehealth? Or um, So there was this moment in time where people were kind of open to thinking differently, but yet at the same time, feeling this pull to just go back to normal, um, mm -hmm. a normal which I believe wasn't really working for most people. I think the yeah. office was working for some people, but for most people, I actually think it didn't work that great. And the more I've researched, I've learned that it was based on a industrial revolution, you know, turn of the century, 150 year old way of doing things. And we just got so used to it. We forgot to challenge our own assumptions. So as I was hearing all this, I started to do my own research. I was like, what's out there? And I was dissatisfied with what I, I found. So I took a different research tact and I dug into brain and behavior because that's what I I know and, and I love. And I felt that what I learned through that is that if we look at this problem through a different lens, the answers are actually not as hard as we think they are. And there's actually things we can do now that aren't as hard as we think they are, but we have to turn around our thinking and see it from a human brain and behavior point of view. So it's interesting because we're certainly creatures of habit. And that research, when I wrote The Future Proof Workplace, 
um, that industrial revolution mindset was really designed around command and control for an illiterate workforce. And here we are in the 21st exactly. century with a highly educated, sophisticated and complex environment and work really and careers can happen anytime, any place, anywhere, but it requires high trust and it requires challenging some of the assumptions and behaviours that you just talked about there that have kept us really trapped in this, we go to work, we sit in the cube, we leave, and then we have life. So I know the book is broken down. So for those who pre-order, first yeah. of all, what's in it for them? So what's, what's exciting about get on the bandwagon early because this book is going to make a difference. So what are we going to discover if we join the pre-launch? So, so there's a couple phases to publishing, which has been, you know, fascinating to learn about publishing. Um, I have done a, a campaign, a, a pre-sale campaign, which closed. So I have a community of people that signed up super, super early. Now there's an opportunity to kind of get on my list to be part of my pre-launch. And without like giving it all away, probably what we'll do for the for the launch, we'll have a launch event. We'll have some virtual learning experiences, probably some time with me. Um, and then people will have the opportunity to get things like book bundles for their team. Like if you're like, oh my mm -hmm. gosh, this resonates with me. I wanna share this with my team. I'd love for you to give me a bundle of books and do a book club for me, or I'd love for you to come and do an event for me. You're kind of the early opportunity to get in on some of that. So you kind of get into the application piece faster than just reading it and then trying to do it later. Um, and then I'm really, I'm very curious and open and I'm, I'm looking for suggestions as how to make an educational experience as engaging as possible, because that's part of the future of work, is how do you make um, these experiences engaging? So not only mm. do you get the book, but you kind of get access to all of these other you know, materials, whether they be um, online or customized. Um, and the earlier you get in, the more availability I'll have, <laughs> frankly, yeah. as we go along, I, you know, I think it'll get harder and harder. So what I liked about Work Smart, use your brain and behavior to master the future of work. It is, for me, the underpinning theme is around intentionality and choice. And I was yeah. talking with Charlene Wheelis and her book, uh, You Are Enough, and she talks about one of her three leadership mantras being choice, not chance. And I think for many of us, we're so caught in the endless Zoom meetings, we're not making any choices really, but we're also um, not being present in the moment. And you start the book about talking about time confetti. So tell me more about this concept of time confetti and how is that helping or hindering our success in business and life? I love the term time confetti. Um, it comes from, I think it was coined by Bridget Schulte when she wrote about being overwhelmed years ago. And this idea that our time, when you leave it to chance, like you said, is eaten up by a million little things. And those little things could be this, our mm -hmm. device, but it, it's not just that, right? Like your little time could be the time that you um, thought about, oh my gosh, I have to make a to-do list to do this thing, or oh my gosh, um, I'm stressed out at work, my boss just sent me this email, or I got a ping over here, oh my gosh, I got to do that thing. And so whether we're at work or at home, our life is consumed by these little tiny, not even a second long tidbits of time that is eaten away. And so we we rarely intentionally carve lar large amounts of time, kind of like Cal New Newport talks about in his deep work 
we rarely carve like chunks of time to just focus and do one thing. And our brains are adapting to that, right? And um, it's a pretty common phenomenon. When people sit down to read, they actually have trouble now. Mm-hmm. They actually have trouble attend- attending and focusing. And um, it's, it's actually impacting the way your brain works. But the good news is our brain is very plastic meaning that we can change it. So we can retrain it to have better attention and focus by eliminating this time confetti. And there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, Chunking is one of my favorite strategies I talk about in the book, um, where you chunk together like tasks. So if you're doing Mm -hmm. a cognitive task like email, you do all your email and then you turn it off. Yep. If you're doing Zoom meetings, you do your Zoom meetings and then you turn it off. You're reading, you read, and then you turn it off. So you chunk together similar tasks because the time and energy that requires your brain to switch tasks is tremendously inefficient. So the more that you switch tasks, there's research that shows your ability to execute drops off dramatically the more things that you're toggling back and forth between. Yes. So kind of, again, what do we know about our brain and how our cognition works and creating strategies to manage our time intentionally And then you're kind of shocked, to be honest. Like when you do this and you're really rigorous about it, you can be kind of uncomfortable because you'll be like. It does feel weird, doesn't it? To start with or cut off when you turn off the phone or turn off the notifications. I'm pointing at the corner of my screen where they would normally appear. And when I'm doing these, I try to switch them off. But it's interesting for me because I've been reading those articles that say the youth of today, you know, attention span of a gnat or whatever, implying that it's getting shorter and yet that the youth of today has the ability to watch a two and a half hour movie without any issue or to sit and play um, online games for hours on end. So help me to understand that selective, maybe when they're listening to their mum, maybe they've got selective attention. But when they're doing something they're passionate about, they can get deeply immersed in it. So help me understand that. Yeah. So I think what you're referring to is kind of the idea of flow a flow Mm -hmm. state or a play state. So when I was researching for the book, I was reading a lot about time spent in play and time spent in flow and what that does for your brain. So for a young person on a video game, that might be a flow state for them. For an adult, maybe you don't like video games. Maybe your flow state is walking. Maybe your flow state is, um, dancing or playing the bassoon or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's different for everybody. But until you create the time to get into play or flow states, you're never go- it's never just going to happen, mm-hmm. right? It's rare that it just happens. So I would characterize that as like when you're in the flow, you feel it. You feel like you're in the flow. Time passes differently, right? People have a hard time interrupting with what you're doing. Um, and, and the idea of play as being critical for our brains to function um, optimally as adults, not just as kids. Um, we, we look at kids and we say, oh yeah, kids have to play to learn and grow and so forth. But we forget that adults do too. And yes. in our culture, we, you know, you can call it the hustle culture or culture of busyness. There are a couple terms I like, but you know, the idea of play has really been lost and we're missing something. Our brains are really missing out by not giving ourselves the time and space to play. 
Well, I like that idea because in, in the beginning of the book, you talk about personal rhythms and certainly for the leaders and executives I'm coaching, their schedules tend to have be a little bit more shotgun, you know, a one-on-one -on -one here, a strategic meeting there and in the weeds meeting next, and it's all over the place. And just even coaching them to take back control and saying, well, can you chunk your time and do all your one-on-ones on a Monday and do right. your team meeting on a Thursday? And just taking, making it a deliberate choice once a year to tidy up your calendar to the extent that you can creates ripple effects and those chunking opportunities for others too. So from that personal totally rhythm, agree. you move into the communication and the digital world that we're living in, the endless Zoom meetings, et cetera, and how we can better use these tools to foster engagement and a sense of place and time. Talk a little bit more about the insights from your research for that part of the book. So the way I think about communication is maybe a little different than the way you might be or others might be. I think about it as falling into a couple categories. You have synchronous communication, which is what we're doing right now. We're together in real time. We're not in person, but it's synchronous. So a Zoom call is a synchronous communication. There is asynchronous communication, meaning not the same time and place. That could be email, Slack, letters, um, you know, all sorts of things. Then I have a section on um, uh, non-verbal types of communication. So hmm. body communication and what it impacts our bodies. And then finally, kind of on the absence of communication or silence. So I have a chapter talking about silence and not communicating. <laughs> um, and what I would say I've learned is that we focus very heavily on today's culture on synchronous communication um, in meetings. So meetings are the manifestation of synchronous communication. But we should be thinking about synchronous communication more as performance than as meeting. Oh, say more about that. Synchronous as being performance versus meeting. So when you were playing the bassoon and you are synchronously in a room with an audience, you could play every note perfectly and it may not matter at all. Mm -hmm. Your audience may not care. If you don't make a connection with your audience as a performer, whether that's music, art, whatever, um, whatever you just said or did, did it really matter? It's as if it never happened. So the goal of a performer, and I would argue the goal of synchronous meetings like this on Zoom is almost more akin to performance. What do you wanna say? What do you want the person to take away? Who's your audience? And how can you emotionally connect with them rather than just word, 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 word? Because mm -hmm. the words kind of don't matter at the end of the day, right? The PowerPoints, they kind of don't matter. They're a proxy for something, but they kind of don't matter. What matters is the connection and what that person is going to walk out of the room with. So, so synchronous communication in a virtual hybrid workspace has more to do, I believe, with performance, thinking about your audience, what do you want them to walk away with, how are you going to engage them and connect with them, than the actual content. And we, we often make the mistake of just looking at the content. So you spend time talking about empathy and how that brings us closer together, how that helps to um, nurture trust and that sense of belonging. So what tips? For those who are listening and watching this episode, what immediate tips can we all apply in our next Zoom conversation 
that helps us to do that, to culture, nurture, empathy and connection, trust through the camera? So first of all, empathy can be trained. If you're not an empathetic person, I hear that a lot. Like, well, I'm, you're, you're a shrink, Dr. Jenny. I'm not an empathetic person. Well, guess what? Empathy is hard for me too. I trained at it. You can train at it too. And mm -hmm. empathy has limitations. So, so the, the parts about time management and communication are so important because um, you have a limit to the empathy and compassion that you can give on any given day. That's different for different people. So you have to keep your bucket really full so that you can give it to others, right? So if you're a leader, for example, you need to chunk your time and create space for yourself to come to the room in the right state of mind. Otherwise, you can't be empathetic. If you're not in the right place, you can't show up that way for others. That's a really hard lesson for a lot of leaders to learn. Mm -hmm. So I think knowing yourself, showing up in the right way is one thing that you can do and you have to work at it. It's not easy. And knowing you have limitations. You know, I may only have a little bit to give today. Where am I going to give it? Who needs it? I'm not going to give it to everybody today. Um, I think those are two important things. And the other thing is that empathy is different than compassion. Empathy is a little more cognitive. It's the ability to put yourself in someone's shoes and imagine what it's like for them. Compassion is the emotional connection with somebody else. So empathy can be a little more cognitive. So for people who are more thinkers and cognitive, you can have empathy without actually like connecting emotionally. And that's mm -hmm. still okay. It's okay. It still matters to take the time and effort to be empathetic, even if you don't have that kind of like compassionate emotional connection. So, so what's to be gained for our teams, for us as leaders, if we start investing and working on our empathy, but also working smarter using our brain and behavior? Well, first of all, I believe that infusing humanism into the work is the future. I mean, I think talent will go where there's humanistic practices in the workplace. I think retention is higher. I think uh, productivity is higher. So I think there's a very strong business case for infusing more empathy and like in humanism into work. Um, and then I could also make the case from wearing my business hat or my entrepreneur hat that you are going to waste a tremendous amount of time and energy and money if you don't pay attention to this. And guess what? You probably were before. <laughs> you mm -hmm. were before COVID. You just weren't talking about it. You just weren't thinking about it. Empathy wasn't a buzzword. Mental health wasn't a buzzword. People are finally paying attention. But guess what? Like it was always there. And you were probably wasting a lot of time and money on it that you didn't even realize. And by calling it an HR thing or a soft skill thing, you were compartmentalizing it. Maybe it's a little uncomfortable for you, you know, get honest and like it may be uncomfortable. But from a business point of view, if you don't do this, I really think you're not you're not going to succeed in the future. Well, I know from the research for you, me, we, why we all need a friend at work and how to show up as one. Um, the research is clear. The humanistic approach, as you've described there, makes the difference to not only individual leader success, but to team and therefore organizational success by whatever measure you look at it. So this really matters. So for those listening to this episode, where can they learn more about you, your work, and of course, the book? So the best place to learn more about me right now is my website, which is www.drdrjenny.com. 
Um, there is, if you go to my LinkedIn banner, there's a little QR code. That's the easiest way to get info on the book. Just like snap your little picture. It'll take you right over there. Um, and then stay tuned. I'm going to be on LinkedIn quite a bit. If you're on LinkedIn, connect with me, follow me. And when we get closer to the paper book, getting in people's hands, probably after Thanksgiving, um, you'll be hearing a lot from me. And that's when you can jump in and pre-order and maybe sign up for some other team things that might be helpful. Well, Dr. Jenny Byrne, thank you for spending time with me today on People First. I wish you every success with the book launch for Work Smart, Use Your Brain and Behavior to Master the Future of Work, and in your own consulting and coaching practice. Thank you so much for having me. I can't believe I met a fellow bassoon player. It's just a wonderful day. <laughs> thank you so much for joining Morag today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and Morag on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.